Welcome to the Grant Writing Simplified Podcast. This is the place to learn how to make a big impact in your community through grant writing and nonprofit consulting. The world needs you to step forward as a grant writer and use your skills to lead with confidence. I'm Teresa Huff, former special ed teacher turned grant writer and nonprofit strategist. In my 20 years of freelancing, I've helped nonprofits triple their funding and exponentially increase their reach. Now I'm stepping up to mentor freelancers and nonprofit leaders like you who are ready to take your skills to the next level. It's time to get intentional about your vision so you can create lasting change in your community. Learn the skills and strategies you need to become the grant writer the world needs. Let's do this. Hey friends, welcome to episode 21 of Grant Writing Simplified. Today I have an amazing guest and we are talking all kinds of grant writing tips. You will want to take notes on this one. I'm talking with Brandy Van Antwerp. She is the grant administrator of the Cox Health Foundation in Springfield, Missouri. And Brandy has worked in several nonprofit jobs, and now she oversees a large foundation and hospital grant system. She works with federal grants, foundation, all levels. And so she has all kinds of great grant writing tips that we discuss today. We talk about everything from the importance of mentors to how she applied for jobs that she wasn't fully qualified for, but she went after them anyway. She tells us how she approached it and what she told them to be able to get the job. And let me tell you, she's doing them very well. We talk about imposter syndrome. Yes, we battle imposter syndrome. We talk about what to do when grant projects don't go according to plan. She tells us her system for tracking big projects that have a lot of moving parts and involve a lot of different people. We talk about delegating with grace and the importance of being proactive She gives some great advice for managing federal grants and applying for those, and she gives tips for onboarding new people to grant project awards. So much good stuff here today, friends. I hope you enjoy. Shoot me a message if you enjoy this episode. What questions do you have? I love hearing from you guys, and I so appreciate your kind feedback and the kind reviews that you guys have left. So thank you, and here we go. Brandy, welcome to the show today. It's great to have you and good to catch up. Share one random fact about yourself. Well, I was fortunate enough um, in my teens to be a a model on a boat for a boat, like a corporate boat company. Um, I think it helped that I'm short and all that I did was put on my swimsuit and sit in the boat while somebody drove it around. And (laughs) I looked happy. Wow. And Yeah. um, I don't know. That was like a random off the cuff thing to say, but yeah. (laughs) The start of a great career, not in modeling, but hey. Not in modeling (laughs) for a woman who's five two. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) The only time being short is beneficial is on a boat to make it look bigger. That's right. So tell us about your journey and a little bit about your background and how you got here. I... I guess my passion for working in nonprofit started when I was very young. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. And when I was 12, I had my first fundraiser in a small town about an hour and a half in northwest of here. And um, it benefited a domestic violence shelter in a nearby town. And so I really realized that my passion lies in helping people in finding ways to overcome barriers. And for me, 
a gift, I guess, is a gift of gab and fundraising. And so I really honed in on that. And after that, I went on to school at college and continued interning for different nonprofits and ended up getting job offers from that. And I was living in Nashville at the time. I went to Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. And so it kind of kicked off with a few jobs at country radio broadcasters and then at the TJ Martell Foundation. And so I had a lot of mentors who were fundraisers and also grant writers. And I always admired those who could write and apply for grants. And um, so over time, eventually, when I moved to Springfield in 2009, Uh, back to Springfield because I'm from here, but um, I had the opportunity to interview for a job a few years after coming back at Habitat for Humanity. And it was as the development director, which I had done before, but never had to be the grant writer as well. And so I, I was very open with them about my inexperience with grants, but my ability to um, help tell a story and communicate and my organization skills, you know, as far as being able to pull together all the pieces. So um, they hired me, fortunately, and I was there for almost six years and wrote grants for Habitat. And then this job came along in 2018 at the Cox Health Foundation. And again, I was very honest with them that my level of grant writing was not um, nearly as robust as what this job would require but that I would, I would definitely work hard and give it my all and learn, you know, the ins and outs, especially of federal writing and management. And um, they took the chance and it's worked out really well. Now, you know, we're managing millions of dollars every year and I'm working on all sorts of projects from federal to local to foundations or state. Wow. That brings up so many good points <laughs> just within that. <laughs> I didn't realize that about your background and kind of how you got to that point. Yeah, That's amazing that you can use that as kind of your force for wanting to do good in the community. Really, a lot of your success sounds like it was due to early on internships and taking those chances and working hard despite the inexperience and kind of just squelching maybe some imposter syndrome, or I don't have the education, therefore I couldn't do that. Kind of putting some of those thoughts away. I don't know if you struggled with any of that, but I talked to a lot of people that do, and I know I sure have over time. So sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, I may not have the experience, but I could do this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think as women, not to, um, I have two young boys, but as women, we are more often likely to have that imposter syndrome and to kind of disqualify ourselves from being able to apply for a job or, you know, run for an office or um, whatever it may be, because we see ourselves as not having the experience necessary for that position. And so many times you see that um, men are just more willing to go for it and they think, well, what's it going to hurt? Or I have four of the six qualifications, so maybe they'll consider me where women are like, well, I don't have all six, I have five, or, you know, I'm, I'm almost at completing all six, but I'm not there. And it's definitely been a lot of strong women who've been my mentors who've helped me overcome a lot of that as well, but I still battle with it. So I sometimes just try to take a chance. Yeah, that's something I struggle with. And I've had to really 
change the script in my head in that regard. And I think a lot of people struggle with that of just the things we tell ourselves can really make all the difference, good or bad. Yeah, absolutely. What a great journey to this point. And I love how you took the chance on the interview and just telling them, being upfront about it instead of trying to cover up. And really that's one of the big things in grant writing is if there's an issue in your program, be upfront about it and explain it and say, here's how we're going to address it. Instead of trying to sweep it under the rug, I've seen a lot of grant writers that have that misconception of, well, maybe if we don't mention that, they won't notice or they won't say anything, but that's exactly what they're going to hone in on. So I love that you did that in both of these job interviews that you could just address that up front and show them the places that you do have strengths and that you're fully committed to making a go of it. I'm sure they saw that. Yeah, it's worked out pretty well so far. So, you know, I'll just keep being honest and see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my dad always says, if you always tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. That is so true. (laughs) I know. Yeah. So take us behind the scenes of what you do now. I know you've had some pretty big projects the last couple of years especially, and some community impact projects that are really widespread. So tell us about some of that. Yeah, um, since I've been on staff at at Cox Health, I work with essentially all of our system. So we consider ourselves six hospitals. Um, We reach as far west as Barton County, so Cox Barton County Hospital in Lamar. We have Cox Monette Hospital in Monette. We have, of course, Cox North and South here in town. Um, and then we count the Meyer Orthopedic and like we have other hospitals within the what everybody considers the Cox South campus. And then we have uh, Cox Medical Center Branson. And so I work with those entities as well as the Cox College. And then any of our over 80 number, always fluctuating number of clinics that we have in a lot of our rural areas and some that are here kind of urban Springfield. But I'm working with them when they have a, an idea in mind, they have a program or a piece of equipment or staffing that they need and fielding a lot of those questions, trying to research or help them sometimes understand that maybe it's something that we could help with from the foundation with unrestricted funds rather than trying to write a grant for it or you know, helping kind of guide them in the right direction. And once we've researched, I help write the application with that contact or multiple contacts, but I try to keep it kind of narrow on how many I have to work with so we can keep a a reasonable amount of ideas on the table at any time to get things done and meet deadlines. And then once a grant is awarded, we have, so Leslie Maynard and I are both the grant writers in the office. And then Hannah uh, Major is our grant manager. And so she's really our post-award person And Leslie and I serve as pre-award. And so our post-award, Hannah, takes the job from there and she meets with our grant coordinators. So we call a grant coordinator somebody who oversees that grant program. So she meets with them monthly and oversees their payment requests for reimbursement and how they're meeting their timelines on what we've sent in with the proposal and if we're meeting the budget as we sent in with the proposal. And I historically have been our federal contact or our federal writer. And we're getting Leslie working on writing federal grants as well. 
And I still follow along with those federal funds and have meetings. I had one this morning with HRSA for one of the grants that I think would be a good one to highlight, which is our Southwest Missouri Community Opioid Response Program. And that's one that includes uh, ourselves and in total, it's 15 partners in the grant. And it was a $1 million award that we had. And that was my first big that was my first million dollar grant award, which was incredible. Very exciting. That's a big deal. Yeah. And I've written those federal applications. Those are no small potatoes. <laughs> those are a booger to write. Yeah. Not to scare anyone off. <laughs> it can be a doozy sometimes. So yeah, hats off to you. That's awesome. Thanks. It was a really great one. And um, I feel like we, you know, we're still hitting some roadblocks here and there. Like when we were speaking this morning with our contacts at HRSA and our technical assistance team, we we still have some issues with providers not wanting to get certified to work with substance use, opioid use disorder patients. And um, we still have some barriers with the health departments being overwhelmed by COVID. And so we're not able to do as much with them as partners right now. But of course, as a funder, we're very, like you said, we're very open and honest about our roadblocks and they're very understanding, especially about COVID, um, that, that we aren't, our timeline doesn't look exactly like we hoped. Right. And when you first were awarded the grant, who would have thought the year would end up looking like this and have taken such a turn? So I think everyone's trying to figure out how do we redirect and figure that out. It sounds like you have a really good system in place of designated roles for each person mm-hmm. in your department and their specific pieces that they're responsible for. I think so. And we work really well as a team too. We're constantly working with one another. If we hit uh, an issue with managing the grant, or if we have an issue in writing the grant, or even working with one another, I will say whoever's going to be managing the grant needs to be involved in the writing of the grant as well, because they'll be able to foresee some issues or recall them from other programs that you can hopefully avoid if you are really reaching out to everybody you need to um, on the front end. Such a good point. That's true, because it really does affect that long term. It sounds like that is a lot to keep running and a lot of balls to juggle. How do you keep from being overwhelmed with everything on your plate and so much at stake? I keep a digital calendar, but I also have a hard, like a paper planner that I keep with a lot of things in it still. And we have an internal kind of a calendar with our team where we're talking about once a month highlights of things that are going on and then more in-depth if needed on a more regular basis. So I just have a couple of formats for keeping things for myself and trying to keep those top of mind. And then if necessary, when I really get into, um, let's say a grant deadline, and I know something's coming up, I go ahead and block off quite a bit of my calendar at the office and write down what program I need to be dedicating my time to. And that way I can kind of divide it out and hopefully get things from other people because so much of what I feel like I do with this large of a health system is hurry up and wait. So I am doing a lot of the like, you know, emailing right now for FEMA accounting. And there are three people in that office who are helping to get documents for me. And then I'm corresponding with somebody at maybe 
a rural hospital and getting details from them and then going to engineering and getting invoices. And so it's kind of a funny little process, but most of it's done via some checklists and um, just holding myself accountable. That's hard when you have so much to keep track of. And I think it's important to know ahead of time and to really look at those requirements ahead of time. Because if you wait till the last minute and the information is dependent on someone else, you may not be able to get it in time. That's a really good process to do is to really look ahead and to make sure that you are gathering what you need in advance and giving them plenty of notice. Yeah, on writing specifically, I have a, an Excel spreadsheet and I go into each and every like a notice of funding. If I get one from HRSA, I go ahead and create on that spreadsheet each document that's due from them, uh, page limits that might be specified in that NOFO, and then the deadline in which I want to have it personally ready and then who I have it assigned out to. So if I'm looking for like a memorandum of understanding, I may have to delegate that back to the department that's going to run the program. Um, And I've given them a template, but I need them to work with, you know, a third party like Jordan Valley for one of our grants. So they need to work on negotiating what's in that MOU, but then I need it back and I need it signed by a specific date. So, so they know their deadlines too. Um, We have a quasi database, but it doesn't really do project management on the front end for us. So we're kind of using several different tools at this time, but we're researching databases, but I don't know when that time will come. (laughs) Right. And that in itself is a big undertaking just to convert your processes over to that. (laughs) And train everyone. And yeah. Yeah. And part of the training is just remembering to use it on a regular basis and update all the time. (laughs) I still, I've tried different things, but I still like the good old Google spreadsheets for Mm -hmm. a lot of my tracking just because it's so versatile and then I can adjust and update as I need to and keep adding to it. It kind of grows, but that's where my brain lives. (laughs) So what are some of the biggest challenges you've found as you've moved into this world of grant writing, especially since you didn't have any formal training? I know you did a lot of the hands-on internship, which I'm sure was valuable, but what are some other challenges that you found? There was a big learning curve in just trying to navigate grants.gov and SF424. So I would say for anyone who's getting ready to go into the world of federal, it's not unlike other applications that you'll put together. It's just more intense. And part of that is utilizing grants.gov. They have training videos. They have a lot of tutorials and trying to play in it in some form or fashion if you can ahead of time. And of course, even when I came here, the system was already established with SAM.gov and having DUNS numbers. But I know for anybody who's like really getting started on federal, you need to prepare yourself far in advance of ever wanting a grant from the federal government to have your SAM.gov registration and DUNS number, which I know uh, is getting ready to change as far as like terminology, but still has the same purpose for your grant.gov applications. I don't know. I would just say that's been a piece of it. Also, having so many moving parts and so many people involved now is much different than it was at Habitat. There, I probably worked with two people where I knew who they were and I worked with them every time and the programs were quite similar. You know, it was always based around either home building or preservation and repair programs. 
And then later on came another program called Neighborhood Revitalization. But there really were the same key players involved. And here it's been always learning different work styles with other people. But again, it goes back to the imposter syndrome of me um, needing to step outside my comfort zone and delegate with grace and kindly explain to people on the front end, these are the things I will need from you. This is how we run a grant program. Um, So I actually have a booklet that I give to people on the front end that explains what grants are, Um, not to overwhelm them, but really to inform them better of what they're about to get into if they want to apply for a grant. I like that. Do you find people appreciate that or does it just go in a drawer? I think it's helpful to a degree and it depends on the personality of the person. Some of them like it more than others. Some get a little overwhelmed by it. We even have a form that they sign acknowledging, you know, what their responsibilities are. We have a new coordinator training every time a new grant is awarded, even if that person's been involved in a grant with us before. And we go through the same training process, hand them the same booklet, talk them through it, and then they sign an agreement again that they had been trained, retrained, whatever the case may be. In some ways, it just holds them accountable and it helps them to know that we help write it and we help oversee the management of it. But really, they're the ones that are responsible for the day-to-day fulfillment of the program. To actually implement. Yes. With our big system, it can really get bogged down. Um, And people might not know that that's their job. I like that. That's a very proactive approach as opposed to just winging it or thinking, oh, they'll figure it out or they should know this. They've done grants for a while. They should know that this is their part. I really like that proactive approach. We try and we try to be, like I said, we do it with grace. We understand that we're all human and (laughs) there's something we can all learn every day. Even after you've written grants for years. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) No judgment. Just just teamwork. Always more to learn. (laughs) I think the way you've gone about this is really good just Mm -hmm. to encourage people starting out because jumping into the deep end of a role like yours would be a lot for somebody starting out, but they could work up to that in smaller steps and learn in a smaller nonprofit Mm -hmm. or in an internship or just that lower key role where it's not as much pressure and then work up to the bigger management. Yes. And find people who will mentor. You know, there are a lot of us out there who are willing to share advice or templates that can be helpful to other people to help them get that confidence that they need to start branching out into new funding opportunities. Right. Yeah, that was huge for me getting started, just having that to learn from at first. And even after doing it this long, I still learn from other grant writers. I still like to see their process or how they decide on a grant or how they think something through. It gives me ideas or it's just nice to collaborate and see. Yes. Sometimes I feel like I don't know how it's supposed to be done. I just figured it out. But there's in grant writing, a lot of things are not supposed to be a certain way. It's just each person kind of has their way of doing it. Mm -hmm. So it's fun to see how other writers operate. When I would give a couple of tips there in utilizing Freedom of Information Act to find funders that perhaps you see if you're in education or if you're in healthcare or if you're in human services, whatever it is, find an organization like yourself that perhaps is bigger and you can request to have a copy of their application. 
they get notified. We've had that happen here for some of our awards where we get notified that another agency is asking for a copy of our application. And of course, we will tell whoever the funder is we don't have a problem with that. It's supposed to be public knowledge. So you can go that route to learn from people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's really helpful to see a full application put together that's been awarded by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And that way you'll start to kind of get the hang of what these things need to look like. That's a really good point. And it's also good to compare different styles of different writers and see how they approach things, how they put together the needs section, how they present the data, how they outline their goals and objectives, and just kind of compare from one to another. Mm -hmm. I'll say I'm more technical in my writing, um, but I have seen some grant applications that have been awarded by the federal government that were almost like um, a sci-fi novel. I don't know how else to put it, but it was very flowery and had the data it needed in it. It it stated the need for the program. It provided the information that was required of the federal funder, but it also had a very creative story woven into the application, which the reviewers must have enjoyed or appreciated. It didn't harm the application. Interesting. Yeah. And I've never seen anything else like it before. So it could have been a fluke that most reviewers wouldn't like. I will say being a grant reviewer when you have the opportunity is helpful and there are ways to do that on the federal level and then even locally. So, you know, if listeners are here in the like Southwest Missouri region, uh, this will be year two for me in January being a grant reviewer for Ozarks Headwater Recycling District. So I have no bias or, you know, we're not applying for anything with their program And I was able to review the grants last year and actually got to be there in person. This year, we'll do it all via uh, virtual format. But it really helps me, too, to see how other people are uh, structuring budgets, budget narratives, you know, programs, Mm -hmm. just to get more ideas. Mm -hmm. That's true. That is a really great way to learn. And it's also a way to look at it through the reviewer's eyes and to look at it from that scoring matrix, from that rubric aspect Mm -hmm. and what you're looking for in those specific elements. And there may be a wonderful application, but it's missing all these important things. And so what do you do? And it's kind of some of those judgment skills. Yes, yes. And going through, that's something that I'll say I've had two perspectives applications that I've written for over the last, well, two and a half or so, whatever years that I've been here, where I've scored um, a 97 out of 100. And the other one I scored 96.8 or 96.7. And I did not get the awards, even though it was like in school terms, an A. A solid A. Rating, Gail. <laughs> That's impressive. Yes. And the reviews that came back were very vague and actually quite frustrating because there wasn't that much as far as deficiencies in the application. And trying to talk with HRSA to ask them, like, what could we have done to improve upon these programs? And it's really been that it's, a comp- it's getting more and more competitive with HRSA, for example, And while we did a good job, it was like fractions off from the bottom grant that was awarded. Mm, Like just by, you're talking hundredths of a point sometimes, every little bit counts. Yes. So as far as, you know, like my, my win 
ratio is concerned, it didn't help me any, but you know, my, my boss, Lisa, she was like, you did a good job and we're going to move on to the next one. <laughs> I mean, a 96 point whatever on a federal grant is something to be proud of. <laughs> but no money. Awesome. No money. Yeah, no money to show. Fun. That's so frustrating. <laughs> and to be that close. It'd be one thing if you got like a C, if you got yes. like a 70, but to be so close to winning. <laughs> yeah. And that's funny because a couple of weeks ago I did a an episode on success rates and metrics because a common question is, oh, what's your success rate? What's your percentage of grants won? And that's the wrong question. And I won't get into it all because I talked about it there, but yeah, that's a perfect example of why you did everything right. And it literally came down that close. And you see so (laughs) many out there that like, you know, rave and say that they have really high success rates. And then you go, well, how many how many did you apply for? And exactly. <laughs> are you skewing? And were they federal grants or were they local foundations yeah. where your brother-in-law's on the board? Or mm-hmm. <laughs> what's the whole story? Yeah. I'll have to listen to that podcast, that episode. <laughs> yeah. Probably episode 14, I think. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I want to hear that. I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, so you also have some exciting news. So tell us a little about that. Yes. So this morning I went to the Springfield Public Schools Craft Administration Building and I turned in 548 signed petitions for um, myself to run for the Board of Education. And this is something, yeah, I've, I have... Um, been thinking about it for three years. I went to an informational meeting three years ago and picked up the full packet for candidates and started my um, educational journey at that time, learning more about what it entails in the job. Uh, My littlest son was uh, three at the time and three and a half. He just turned seven. I, at the time, knew it wasn't right for our family But now I know that it's the right time. Uh, I've learned a lot and I'm prepared to run and to serve. And I have the time available to be able to do so if I were to be elected. Um, Yeah, when I saw that you were running, I was excited. I thought, man, she would be so good on a school board. (laughs) They would be lucky to have you. So thank you. I hope that works out. I do think we need the voice of an active parent on our board. So I hope that I can help be um, a little bit more of a voice for those um, underserved kids in the strategic plan for SPS. I think we need to work really hard to help them. I'm glad that you're there to step up, plus just the professional knowledge that you bring to the table. Thank you. As we wrap up, tell us a resource that has been meaningful to you. In our household, we have a quote that we like to say that's from Dr. Seuss. And it may sound very familiar, but it's unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. It's from the Lorax. And it's a very special book in our house. Uh, We just love Dr. Seuss anyway, but it's one of those things where we've told our kids, you know, you you have passions in life and we want you to follow those passions and we're going to be there to support you no matter what path you take. But we got to do things to make make life better for others and for ourselves. Such a good basic yet so profound thing to instill in your kids and to remember in your day-to-day life, the big things and the little things. So where can we find you online if someone wants to connect? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and my name is Brandy Van Antwerp and you'll find me on there. All right. I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and sharing all your expertise. And it's just good to talk to other grant writers and kind of see how they 
handle things and how you operate. So thank you very much. Thanks for asking me. I appreciate you. Are you ready to learn more? I have a quiz called, Do You Have What It Takes to Be a Grant Writer? Hop over there and take that and see what your results say. Go to TeresaHuff.com slash quiz. If you love this show and you learn something new about being the type of grant writer the world needs so you can create a ripple in your community, please go leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts today. Thanks for listening. Now go change your world.